0: Hi, listeners. I'm your host, Rebecca Kelly, and welcome back to The Station, a fiction podcast following the story of a girl named Ida Shepard, who's trapped on board an abandoned space station called the Delta. Now, Ida has just recently made contact with the surface for the first time in her life. That's 18 years In the last episode, we heard the transcript from her first conversation with the NASA engineer, Ale Bacchus, who found her transmission buried in the signals of a set of new communication satellites. In this episode, we'll meet a new character in our story and learn how the higher-ups at NASA feel about this new and astonishing development. Are you ready? Let's jump right in. Here is Chapter 26 of The Station. John Patrick stared out the window of his ninth-floor corner office at 2 Independence Square. The longtime NASA headquarters was located in the heart of Washington, D.C.'s downtown business district, just a few blocks away from the National Mall. The building held the gold-trimmed, leather-lined, mahogany-rich offices of anyone who was anyone at the world's most prestigious space agency. Patrick had been the administrator for only three months when Congress had given the go-ahead to push forward with a new campaign to put humans back in space. That was six years ago, and since that time, they had made great strides, a fact Patrick never left out in a press conference. He took great pride in the accomplishments of the organization under his command. That pride came with a pinch of smugness and a dash of bullying swagger. Bully or not... John Patrick had created a space agency that, unlike the stodgy, misogynistic pre-war NASA, was creative, economically efficient, and groundbreaking. Of course, all pre-war technology had been abandoned in this new quest for manned spaceflight. The new administration was determined that spaceflight should be economical and reusable, In the past, NASA's primary goal had been exploration, which really meant a race to the finish line to claim a first prize that included a stiff American flag planted in moon dust and all the accompanying international praise. After the initial space race back in the 1960s, the folks at NASA almost didn't know what to do with themselves. They took a stab at making space more economical and accessible to everyone, by diving headfirst into the space shuttle program. The space shuttle, an awkward vehicle, stuck somewhere between a rocket and a jetliner, turned out to be the deadliest space vehicle to ever fly the not-so-friendly skies of low-Earth orbit. Patrick looked back at that time and could only shake his head, wondering what it was all for. Experimentation? Study? Useless, in his opinion. It wasn't that Patrick didn't value the need for experimentation and study. He knew it was a critical part of conquering the safety aspect of space exploration, but he was determined that his version of space exploration would be useful first and scientifically meaningful second. Under him, space exploration would provide jobs, advance creativity and engineering, and most importantly, bring in cash. His plan was to turn NASA into its own business, no longer shackled to the ankles of the overweight congressmen who sat in their big leather chairs just a few blocks away from where he sat now. Space was a commercial gold mine full of unexplored worlds that contained countless unknown minerals for mining, possibly even a resource that could solve the ever-mounting energy crisis on Earth. A gram of moon dust could sell at auction for millions of dollars. If the rich and powerful could build their homes out of stone mined from the surface of Mars, or Titan, or even Pluto, the possibilities were endless. Patrick's organization was moving ahead at full speed toward finding out what possibilities lay just outside of Earth's thin, filmy atmosphere. His first move as NASA Administrator had been to tighten the belt of public relations, NASA had been pretty tight in the past, during the space race era, but had reverted to an open-door policy in the years prior to the war. Since the organization was publicly funded, prior administrators believed that the public should know all that went on within its walls. Patrick did not share this opinion. He believed informing the masses should be done only when absolutely necessary. And to his surprise, Patrick was rarely surprised by anything, congress agreed with this policy the new nasa would be about making money behind the scenes staying well away from the limelight and congress had given john patrick the freedom and the funding to make it happen for the first time in history nasa wasn't under a tight deadline to make space happen they were taking their time and patrick couldn't have been more pleased with the outcome so far manned missions were on the near horizon An astronaut corps had been recruited and was deep into training at a high-tech commercial facility built by the joint funds of private companies and the American taxpayers. It was a collaborative effort and a damned good one, he thought. A tall and lean man, John Patrick was in his mid-forties with sandy blonde hair and pale blue eyes. They were the kind of blue that looked shallow at first, like water droplets but had the ability to pierce right through you in a matter of seconds. Prior to coming to NASA, Patrick was a major in the US Army, serving his time deep in the jungles of Central America fighting the SA. His master's degree in mechanical engineering from MIT had gotten him his first job at NASA right after the war. It took only a few months for him to rise through the ranks to the most coveted corner office at Two Independence Square, exactly as his father had done three decades earlier. His office overlooked the Washington, D.C. Division of Forensic Science. The building looked like a giant glass cube, shimmering in the morning sunlight. Patrick shuddered to think of what went on in there. He had never been a medical man, and the sight of blood made his guts wrench. He preferred working with solid things like aluminum and titanium, bolts, joints, ball bearings, ion engines, etc., Soft stuff wasn't his thing. In fact, he found the daily grind of his administration duties almost as gut-wrenching as the forensic science stuff. But despite his aversion to it, he was good at dealing with people. Ever the level head, he could deal with almost anything thrown at him, which is a character trait that earned him the job. Mr. Patrick, came the call from his assistant Tommy, whose office was across the hall. Jade Stanton is here to see you. Thanks, Tommy. Send her in, he said. A moment later, Jade strolled into Patrick's office. After closing the door, she spun on her high-heeled black pump and took a seat at the chair immediately in front of his steel and glass-top desk. Patrick swiveled in his chair to face her. Jade wore diamond stud earrings, red lipstick, a hint of pink blush on her dark cheeks, and a black pinstripe pantsuit. Patrick still couldn't resist the sight of her. Their affair had been ten years earlier when they were both serving high positions in the army. It was a secret, of course, but it had been one of the best times of his life. Now, even though he was married with a three-year-old daughter, he still thought of Jade as one of the most beautiful women he had ever known. More important than that, though, Patrick respected Jade. The two had been friends long before their short affair, and she was one of his most trusted advisors. It was this trust that earned her the director position overseeing the TDRS launch. The satellite launch was a critical element in the manned space program timeline, and he knew he could count on Jade to get the job done. Good morning, Patrick, Jade said, a hint of a smile crossing her red lips. However, as soon as the words left her mouth, the tiny curve in her lips faded and a look of intensity came over her face. We've got a problem, she said. Patrick was not at all surprised by her forwardness or the fact that she had almost entirely skipped the pleasantries. Jade was not one to dance around a sticky topic. He returned his gaze to the window overlooking the glass box across the street and said, Yes, your email mentioned that. What's going on? You were vague. Yeah, well, I didn't want to go too far into detail until I could be here in person, she said. I found out about this a few days ago, but I've been holding on to it so that I could get the facts straight. She looked around the room thoughtfully. How about a drink? I could use one. Before he could speak, she was out of her chair and striding across the room to the small bar that stood in the corner opposite the window. It was obvious that Jade had been to that bar before, because she knew exactly how to find the hidden switch that turned the lights on and popped open the door to the liquor cabinet. As she poured herself a drink from a bottle of bourbon, aged thirty years, she looked over at him to get his response. Uh, no, I think I'll be okay. I mean, it's only ten-thirty, Jade, he said, glancing down at the tiny hollow watch on his wrist. She nodded, but ignored the implications behind it, and poured another glass of the fragrant liquid before heading back over to the desk. She placed one glass squarely in front of Patrick before taking her seat. Trust me, you might want that after I tell you about this, she said, pointing at the cut crystal glass in front of him. Well, spit it out then, he said. He wasn't amused by her antics. Jade wasn't a dramatic person, that's why he liked her. Whatever this was, it had to be a big deal or she wouldn't be putting on this show. Jade sipped her drink and then began to explain the details of the signal that the TDRS had picked up. And how they had tracked it to the Delta space station, still in orbit after 18 years. Patrick listened, still gazing out the window. The look on his face wasn't disbelief exactly. He'd seen enough unbelievable things during his time fighting the SA to know that almost anything was possible. But he was definitely thrown off by this information. When she finished, he asked, How is that possible? Patrick knew as well as anyone else that it was almost impossible that the Delta was functioning after 18 years, let alone still in orbit. Because? She paused to take another long swig of her bourbon, draining the glass. There's a girl up there. I'm sorry, what did you just say? He asked. The window, forgotten, his pointy blue eyes resting solidly on her face. There's a girl up there, she said, slower this time, emphasizing the words. You've got to be kidding, Jade, he said. I wish I were. There's a girl up there, she repeated, shaking her head as if she couldn't believe it, even though she had spoken to the girl herself that very morning. Patrick opened his mouth to speak, but the words were lost. Instead, he picked up the glass in front of him and took a long drink. I told you you'd want the bourbon, she said, getting up for a refill. As she walked, she continued speaking. I talked to her this morning, myself, on the damned ham radio. She laughed out loud. Think about that. Here we are, with all of NASA and its technology at our fingertips, and we're using an amateur radio to talk to a girl on a derelict space station. She shook her head in disbelief as she tipped the bourbon bottle into her glass. We've given her instructions to orient her antenna array at the TDRS. That's the only reason we even found her. She noticed the launch from Florida based on some sort of visual scanning program. Then she pointed her distress signal at the satellites. Wow, he said, draining his own glass and tapping it down on his desk. Her mother was Millicent Shepard, Jade said with a raised eyebrow. But Millicent Shepard died. Patrick vaguely remembered the story of the Delta, and he knew the crew had burned up over Kazakhstan during re-entry. Yes, that's right. She died in the Soyuz crash that killed the others. At least, that's what NASA thought. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember that, Patrick said. They confirmed the breakup of the spacecraft over Russia two days after losing communications with the Delta, Jade said. But since the whole world was concentrating on fighting the war, nobody really looked into the matter further. They couldn't communicate with the Delta, and the crew was dead. End of story. Wow, he said again. You're telling me that Millicent Shepherd was not only alive, but she was pregnant? I guess so, she shrugged. She must have gotten pregnant while she was on board. They always tested them, the ladies, before they went up, you know. So it must have happened on the Delta. Apparently she didn't make the trip down in the Soyuz. Maybe she knew she was pregnant and didn't want to risk it. So she was able to carry a baby to term and give birth and raise a child by herself on a space station? He said, his mind blown. He couldn't believe his own words. They sounded like something out of a science fiction movie. Jade nodded and stared out the window behind Patrick, into the blue sky beyond. There's another problem, she said after a few seconds. Her engine quit working, meaning the orbit is going to decay long before we can get anyone up there to her. We'll have to focus on troubleshooting the engine. It's the only way she'll make it long enough for us to get up there to her. Project Diamond will need to go into serious overdrive. I know we haven't been on a strict deadline, but we've got one now. We expect the orbit to last six months max, possibly four. Patrick pinched the bridge of his nose and squeezed his eyes shut, letting out a long, slow breath. Project Diamond was the code name for the manned space program, and it was still 18 months away from human flight tests. Okay, he said. Well, let's get our engineers working on the problem. I agree, Jade said. I'll have the engineering team run a full diagnostic check on the onboard systems. We'll have to set up a temporary mission control to keep watch over this. I'll give you an update as soon as I know more, but it's going to take a few days to sort everything out. The computer technology that she's got up there is, well, out of date, to say the least. Patrick nodded at her, and then he stopped her as she stood to leave. The girl. What's her name? He asked. Ida, Ida Shepard, she said, turning and heading out the door. As the door clicked shut behind her, Patrick turned back to the window and gazed up at the sky. In the span of five minutes, the world he'd built at NASA had changed for good. His jaw tightened as he started to mentally add up the dollars he would need to spend on this rescue mission the resources that would be taken away from his commercially driven space projects. But what if there was a silver lining to this, he wondered. Ever the pragmatist, his entrepreneurial mind kicked into gear and he began to speculate about the possibilities. A girl who was born and raised in space. She was the ultimate test subject. The perfect specimen to show the world what could be possible from colonizing space. Yes, there might be a positive to this situation after all, he thought. His piercing blue eyes widened and a hint of a smile spread across his lips. Ida, he said, his smile growing wider as his mind twirled around the possibilities. <laughs> Thanks for listening, sci-fi fans. In the next episode, we'll see how Ida is handling her new situation. For the first time in her life, she's able to contact other people whenever she wants. And it's really throwing a wrench into her otherwise organized lifestyle. You don't want to miss it. See you then. Bye.